IntelliKey Leadership Stories with Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Connect with us on LinkedIn or visit our website, pureintellikey.com. Here's your host, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Well, welcome back, friends, to another episode of IntelliKey Leadership Stories. And this is the podcast where we get to talk to leaders and about leadership with experts all over the world to find out what really makes conscious leaders people who want to reach their own full potential, but also help others and help their company reach their soul's potential. And we're just so happy to have as our guest today, John David Mann. John, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's so great to be here. And John is an award-winning and best-selling author of many books, especially parables that we're going to talk a little bit about today that get into leadership. Uh, books like The Go-Giver, books like Out of the Maze, which was the sequel to Who Moved My Cheese. Yeah, I got uh, and, really excited about that because yeah. I loved Who Moved My Cheese. Yeah, <laughs> Kirsten hasn't gotten the sequel yet. She's late to I that part. I have not. Uh, it is oh, cool. on my to-buy list today. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Well, John, if we start with The Go-Giver, Kirsten and I were talking earlier in the week about you know leaders who lead to get whether that's for themselves or for their stakeholders and stockholders and investors and yes. so forth. But what about leaders that give? What have you learned about that and, and that you put in your books? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Before The Go-Giver, uh, I spent many years as an editor of a couple of business journals in the, in the direct sales world, mostly. And uh, in one of our journals, I remember a... Um, we had a journal that featured a lot of interviews with sales superstars and networking superstars and uh, sales management, you know, organizational superstars. And my uh, one of my partners in the venture, I remember him saying, there's, after a few years of doing this, that there's really two kinds of, of leaders that we that we seem to bump into. There's leaders who call us up and say, you know, I've got an incredible story. You guys should really write about me. And then there's leaders who call us up and say, you know, I got this young guy in my organization. He's 25 years old. He's like, practically right out of high school, and he is tearing it up. He's got an amazing story. You should do a story about him. And it was the second kind was the kind that we always wanted to feature. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was leaders who live to build other people up. Like that's for them what leadership is about. It's to have the leadership as an opportunity or a platform from which they can reach down and lift other people up, give them their moment in the sun, give them their spotlight, help them develop to their true potential. I mean, that's to me what great leaders do. Great leaders are great leaders because they have a better than average capacity or they have developed that capacity to spot potential in other people and, and nurture it. You know, it's like what parenting is. The leaders are like parents for the broad population. So true. And obviously, The Go-Giver, it became quite a series. I mean, there are yeah. many spinoffs and sequels and forms that it began to come in. Why, why do readers continue to be drawn to it? That's a, that's a great question. Surprisingly enough, I don't get that question a lot. So I appreciate that. Uh, why does it draw so many people? Because, you know, Bob and I published it in 2008. And it was the book that yanked me out of the trajectory that I was on, I thought I was going to become a screenwriter. That was my plan. And I'd like to say Bob Berg ruined my Don't career. Don't you because... love those plans? Yes. Don't yes. Those plans. plans? Such <laughs> smart plans. plans. That's right. <laughs> I have made so many good plans. However, yeah. none of them has panned out. And now we know uh, we have Bob Berg to blame. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's Bob Berg's fault. If you want anything ruined, kids, invite Bob to your birthday party. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, 
so you know, Bob came along and asked me if I'd write, write this book with him. And that, you know, knocked me off trajectory and set me on this path, you know, and here we are 30 books later. It's what I do. It's, and I, and, and I, it's, it's, I've come to realize in the years since then that at least how it feels to me at this point is this is what I was put on the planet to do. I mean, I've done a lot of different things, enjoyed a lot of different things, but they were all like warm-ups for this. So I, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to Bob for ruining my life. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but why, why, so we put the book out and it says, you know, a, a little story about a business idea, about a surprising business idea or about, a, you know, and so it was meant to be for the business community, but really it's, it's, it's a Trojan horse because it was really meant to be for everybody. And that's what happened. I mean, suddenly people were using it in sermons in church, in family groups, in marriage counseling, in, you know, uh, in chambers of commerce and all over the place. Uh, I think one of, the re one of the things it touches for people is, um, first off, it's, there's a story there. And I think that when you lecture, when you tell people ideas, it, they tend to bounce off unless you're an incredibly engaging storyteller. All the great public speakers are great storytellers. It's not because their ideas are so brilliant that they're successful, though those ideas may be brilliant. It's because they couch them in great stories. Stories are what reach people. Stories are what touch and move people. Um, stories are the way people learn. Um, and I, I think it's because they touch our emotions. It's because we can place ourselves in the story. We can see ourselves in that character. Joe, the hero, the hero, main person character in The Go-Giver, this hapless guy who's struggling to make, to, you know, to make it. And he's really kind of all about himself. He's kind of all about like, what, how can he close this deal? How can he use this, this man, Pindar, to his own benefit? Oh, I know Joe. I know. You know, that. Joe, you've met him. <laughs> and, and he's not a bad guy. He's right. not a bad guy. He's just got a limited vision. He's got a limited right. scope. And what Pindar and his friends do is they crack that vision open and they give him a bigger picture. And the bigger picture they give him, of course, is this basic principle that if you put your focus on helping other people, if you put your focus on other people's interests, you end up doing really well. You don't end up sacrificing yourself. You actually end up serving yourself by serving other people. You know, that's kind of the secret that he discovers. And I think, you know, one reason that it touches people and it's moved a lot of, we just passed our, our million mark. Oh, over, a million, over a million, Congratulations. Yeah, over, a, over a million copies sold. Um, and I think one reason that it's touched so many people is that they experience the discovery of these principles through living the story. And here's another thing that's interesting about that. You know, this, as anybody who's read the book knows, there's five laws, there's five main principles in the book, and they're, they're revealed one at a time. And the first four, we call them like four fingers and a thumb, because the first four are all about giving. They're all about putting other people's interests first. And the fifth one is about being receptive. And it says that the key to continuous giving is to stay open to receiving. It's about receiving, not giving. And a universal experience Bob and I have both had is people who talk to us say, you know, the first four principles, I get those. They're like, that's how I always thought the world worked. That, that's always how I, I tried to, it resonates. It, it felt like home to me, like natural. But the fifth principle was, is difficult. I'm having a hard time with that one. And I love these, these true confessions. Uh, it's because a lot of us like, would like to see ourselves as giving people. And, and you know, we, we are, but we're, for some 
reason, call it cultural bias or call it training or whatever it might be, a lot of us feel like it's good to be generous and thoughtful, but for some reason it's not okay when other people are generous and thoughtful to us. Like it's not okay to receive a compliment. It's like, well, oh, that's, that's, you're looking really nice today. Oh no, uh, nothing. I just, yeah. This, this, yeah. Like, and, and you're speaking to that vulnerability, right? Yes. We're talking, yes. you're talking about that vulnerability in receptivity. Yeah. And yes. even as you're speaking, I mean, there's a hundred places I would love to go with you, but staying on topic of this topic of receiving, right? I'll go wherever you go. Yes, go ahead. You have this vulnerability where it's ingrained in us not to have it, especially yes. in business, right? If yes, that's, yes. you're not supposed to have it in business. If you do, you actually might not make it, right? Yeah. And, and then you add this component when you actually do receive, you end up having compassion because you learn how hard it is to receive, right? And because oftentimes people, when you give gifts, you can't understand why they're not appreciating it the way they want to. And you all of a sudden have compassion. Like if you think about people who are in poverty that have to receive all the time, there's a shame in having to receive. So once you're able to receive compassion has a moment to step in as well. So I love that you're speaking to this. You said something really, yeah, you said so many, actually so many powerful things in there, but the word shame is really, really key too. I think that's so true. There's kind of a shame in receiving. Like there is a... Uh, sort of inherent evilness or at least shamefulness about doing well in business yeah, or about yeah. or about you know doing well in your in your bank account or, or, or what have you and it, we have a very very weird dichotomy in our in our modern culture about success in that a it's like we all love these success stories the american success story horatio alger and how you know bootstrapping our way from poverty from rags to riches that's a story that we kind of worship at that altar. And yet being rich, being at the end of that story is like, oh no, rich people are like, they're, they're the cause of all the problems in society. Yeah, um, they're the root it's of weird. evil. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's weird. Well, they're, go, they're the go-takers, not the go-takers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and I guess, John, there must have been times too uh, after the book, because over time, this idea of giving more, uh, in yes. order to gain more it has got some traction and people call it servant leadership now. And I guess many cynics would say, how can you stand up at a podium and say, I'm really a servant leader and, and wear this proudly. Instead, you're using that term maybe to get more. I don't know if I'm yeah. explaining that correctly, but you can see no, how I people would really try true. to turn that inside out. Completely. And, and they're not entirely unjustified. Um, because, you know, we can do that. You know, humanity, I think it was Martin Luther who said that humanity is like a drunkard who, having fallen off his horse on one side, clambers back up and falls off on the other side. And, and that is kind of what, what we do tend, tend to do. We tend to go to one extreme or the other. So it, mm -hmm. it is not difficult to, to really get enthralled with this idea of servant leadership and then say, hey, look at me. I'm a, I'm a servant leader. You should write stories about me. It's like, wait a minute, <laughs> have we just fallen off the horse on the other right. side? Can you cast more spotlight on my ego as a servant leader? Yeah. And, and a phrase that you used, a phrase that you used is interesting, give in order to receive. And, and that's, you know, Bob and I would both say that isn't quite how we frame it. Um, mm -hmm. The idea isn't giving because if I do, then I'll get. Uh, it isn't like being generous because that's the way. I'll get more. 
Um, it's more like it is, it is stepping back and having a larger view. It is recognizing and seeing this universal truth that when plants breathe out oxygen and breathe in carbon dioxide, we're doing the opposite and that we're complementing each other. That what our giving is by definition, somebody else is receiving. It isn't like giving's good, receiving's bad, or you know, one is better than the other or what. No, they're the two halves of a cycle and it's participating in that. That's what we're trying to get at. So you don't give in order to receive, you give because it's a satisfying and, and fulfilling state of being and you have the knowledge that when you're in that place living with generosity living with the spirit of generosity the world is going to tend to take care of you you know you talk about this state of being there's a really big difference there's a huge distinction and and so how would you break it down for our listeners the state of being rather than the act of doing Uh, i would I think I would almost break it down this way. It's almost like um, practicing. You know, when I was a kid, I, I played the cello and that was my early experience of the nature of practice of taking something, an action, activity, a set of activities that doesn't feel natural and that I don't know how to do well. And it sounds like hell <laughs> if you're nearby and doing it over and over and over and over a little bit every day until it reaches a point where all of a sudden it starts to feel natural. And I think that uh, for, you know, for many of us, living with the spirit of generosity is like that, because we all start out in a selfish place. And if you don't believe me, look at any three-month-old. I mean, it's, it's like our natural state. Me, as infants. me, me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, the first thing your hand does when you figure out that your hand is gone, it goes in your mouth. Uh, you're putting everything in your mouth when you're, when you're, because the world is there to feed you. That's normal for an infant. That's how they should be. Infants do not tend to to emerge from the womb saying, how can I help you today? You know, it's like, (laughs) so we're all growing from infancy to this place of of understanding our relationship with the world around us, including other people, and getting the hang of this generosity cycle, this flow of giving and receiving. So it, it isn't natural to anybody. I mean, not native in our childhood. So I think that you know, you talk about, uh, Kirsten, you talk about state of being versus the doing of it. I think that sometimes it's like Joe in the story. He's been given this task of, of, of serving others. And the only thing he can think of, to, and he has to do it that day. You know, part of the, the rules of the book are he learns a principle. He has to put it in practice that day before he goes to sleep at night or the whole deal is off. He doesn't get to sleep in there anymore. So one day he's supposed to serve other people he, he can't think of any anything but making them a cup of coffee and he feels like an idiot he feels just you know almost like stupid it's like i don't think this is what they meant by this principle but he makes a thing of coffee and that's what it's like sometimes you know um we have a another go-giver book coming out next spring uh, called the go-giver marriage my wife and i just finished writing it and it's all about the go-giver principles as they manifest in a relationship in a marriage and uh, you know, one of the things that my wife, I always hear her telling people as example is every day, my husband brings me a cup of tea in bed. Well, you know, a cup of hot tea, this is a cup of hot tea, audiovisual aid. I bring, brought myself one. <laughs> it's a little thing. Um, and sometimes the whole deal with being a go-giver is practicing these little acts 
even if you are doing it with this idea of like, I'm giving in order to get, I'm giving because that's what they told me to. I'm giving because that's what the rules say in this book. That's okay. That's just like practicing the cello and sounding like hell. That's just getting the feeling of it. Because as you do it, and as you do it, and as you do it, you start to get into the flow of it and it starts to become your native language. It starts to feel natural. And, and then cool stuff starts to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, and John, there, obviously we've been talking about the parable, the story that yeah. is the go-giver. And this has become a real style, a real genre for you uh, in telling these other stories, like in Out yeah. of the Maze and like in The Latte Factor and other go-giver yes. books. Why, why do you think these parables you know, we know innately we like stories, but why does the parable uh, connect so well with us? Um, the, uh, well, I, I'll, tell, I'll, answer, I'll answer two questions in there. One is why does the parable connect so well with us? And why, is, why does it attract me so much? Yeah, why is it your... Also implicit, <laughs> implicit in your question too, or in your preamble to the question. So, I mean, I think parables appeal to all of us naturally, even though I, I will insert that you hear a lot of business people who say, I mean, not everybody, but you hear enough. You hear people, people say, I hate business parables. Bob and I hear this a lot. I hear this all the time. Yeah, we're not, we're, publishers say it's tough to publish a good business parable because people hate parables. Well, first of all, it isn't tough to publish a parable. I mean, the proof, proof of the pudding is in the eating and you mentioned who moved my cheese. Hello, uh, 25 million <laughs> copies or whatever it was. But but um, I think that the reason that a subset of, of, of uh, of you know, educated readers say they don't like parables is because there are a lot of parables out there that feel very dumbed down, mm-hmm. that feel really one-dimensional, or that you know, it's it's not at all hard to write a parable, but it's hard to write a good one. It's really easy to write a parable that isn't very good. Um, a parable can easily come off as just sort of a thinly disguised PowerPoint presentation. Oh, I have five principles I want I want to teach you, and so I'm going to make two people, and I'm going to call them I don't know Ted and Alice. And Ted says, gee, I wish I knew this. And Alice says, oh, I know how to do that. And Ted says, oh, wow, now I understand it. And it's like, oh, it's a parable. The end. And it's like, oh, <laughs> help me. You know, it's like, must I read the, nut, the rest of the 40 pages? So a good, a real parable, a gripping parable, going back to the Bible, but also through all the classics of the 20th century, you know, the greatest, the richest man in Babylon, the greatest salesman in the world. You know, the yeah, alchemist, I'm thinking is, of the alchemist. That's exactly oh, what I was just thinking of. Our, a real par- a gripping parable is a rich human story. It's just that it's very simplified. It's like it's almost stylized. So it's like, you know, if you're a classical musician, it's like Bach's 24 little preludes for the, or, you know, or preludes and fugues for the clavier, little tiny pieces that are incredibly rich. That's what a parable is. It's a short, relatively simple story that nevertheless has we hope depth to it has real depth. One of the reasons that, that I love parables is that a lot of people who don't read other books, who don't read larger, you know, 200 page, 300 page books, will read a parable. I have had so many people say, honestly, I haven't read a book since college, but I picked up The Go Giver and I read it in a weekend and I loved it. And to me, there's two really exciting things there. First of all, they, they read my book and loved it. And the second thing is they read a book and loved it. <laughs> Forget that it was mine. Uh, um, and that's, that to me is really, really cool. So I, but one thing I personally love about parables is that in a parable, 
I've always had, oh, you have a question? No, no just uh, every, now, every now and then, Kirsten and I give each other hand signs. Oh, so. I see. this is great. Like, we, should have, we should have Steal brought second. you into that party. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Pictures distracted. If I second. touch my left ear. That's right. So one thing that's, that I love about parables, I've, I had this mission statement that, that I kind of codified when I was in my 20s. I was, when I was asking my, first asking myself, what do, I, what do I love to do? Why am I here? What am I doing in the world? Uh, I didn't know about writing books yet, but I just was look, looking for what am I doing here? And it, it, it occurred to me that I love taking complex things um, and, and making them simple so that people can understand them. Um, if I were an engineer or a physicist, which I'm not, I would probably be one of those people who love to, to give TED Talks so that you know, people could understand what engineers and physicists do. I love doing that. I love making complex things real, tangible, so people can get them and go, ah, oh, I get it, and I can use that. The other thing I love about parables is that in a parable, every word counts. Every single word counts, and I love words. Uh, words are like little packages of, of meaning dynamite. And, I feel like and, I'm listening to Ernest Hemingway somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. There was a man who appreciated the value of a single word. word yes. Yeah, yeah. And I love that. I tend to use way too many words. Yeah. You see a first draft of mine, and then you see a final draft. You know, I've cut out like nine out of ten words because when I first write, when I think, I think in too many words. So I love taking something and boiling it down to like simplicity. And that's you know, like out of the maze you mentioned doesn't get any simpler because for that book I had to I had to channel Spencer Johnson. Mm-hmm. Spencer was an author of children's books. That's what he did. Yeah. I mean he was yeah. also a physician. He was a doctor. He, he was involved in, in you know in, in business and he, he was a major entrepreneur in the medical world, but he also wrote children's books. And Who Moved My Cheese is written in the style of a children's book. I mean it's way simpler than the go-giver or the latte factory, and certainly the alchemist. It's like children's book simple. And so to write out of the maze, um, talk about ghostwriting, Spencer was already gone actually mm-hmm. when uh, he, he wanted to write a sequel um, and he worked on it, worked on it, worked on it, but it never quite came together. And so they came to me a year after he died and said, would you do this? So I had to like s- step into not only his shoes, but his jacket and his, you know, glasses and his brain and be him. Um, and that was just incredibly challenging and incredibly gratifying. That's so good. Well, and John, a lot of your books uh, that we've been talking about and more are collaborations. You know, they're your co-authoring, your ghostwriting, your yep. second smaller font name sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think in the leadership context, we wanted to talk a little bit about that. So on the one hand, the collaboration, you know, working with others to really uh, bring your your stories to life, but also, you know, in the spirit of go giving, saying, I don't have to be the largest font on the cover of this book to feel like I've made a contribution. Yes. Yeah, it it is. It is an interesting it is sometimes a, a weird place to be because, you know, it, it's, and it's great that you said that because it's something I, I actually have to remind myself sometimes because, you know, I have these books out there and everybody 
in the world seems to think that, you know, this person wrote the book and, you know, they don't know that I exist. And the re there's a reason for that, which is that I don't promote much. I'm not out much in the public. I don't do a ton of, you know, I'm not on social media a whole lot. I don't, I don't, um, I used to do public speaking, but I haven't done it for many, many years. So mostly I, I like to tell people that Bob Brew keeps me chained to the floor in the basement writing. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite true really, but um, so yeah, it is, it is, I, I, I very much take the backseat in terms of the, the, the public face of it. Now, there are some books, just to clarify, there are some books I, I've written where I am a genuine ghostwriter because I'm like writing somebody else's memoir. So, and those are interesting. Writing someone else's memoir is like, I would imagine, being an actor playing a famous person in a movie, like playing Freddie Mercury or playing, you know, Margaret Thatcher or what have you, a biopic. So I did my buddy, Brandon Webb, former Navy SEAL sniper. I did his, you know, I wrote his uh, memoir with him, The Red Circle. And in, in that, what, I, what I'm trying to do, just like an actor, is learn everything I can about that person and then channel them. Then, and, 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 and before I do that, learn everything I can about them, find every point of empathy that I can, uh, points of connection. And I used to hear actors say this, and I thought they were just being pompous. They would say, I have to find myself in this character. I was like, oh, come on, you sound like an actor. You know, I get it. <laughs> what do LA. I have in common with a Navy SEAL sniper? Yeah, it's so LA, seriously. What do I have in common with it with a Navy SEAL sniper? I've never served in the military. I have never fired sniper rifles. You know, I'm a former cellist. Uh, but Brandon and I really connect on a whole lot of values points. Uh, um, and we've been working together for over a decade now. We're, we're both entrepreneurs. We both really cherish excellence. We both really uh, are perfectionists. We both have a good sense of humor. We both, you know, blah, 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 blah. So by the time I wrote that book, I had to be able to be him to some extent for the book to be authentic. And I've written, I've written memoirs for women and for men, for conservatives, for liberals, you know, for, for business people. For So it's, it's an interesting challenge in empathy and perspective but then there are the books like the go-giver um or this novel coming up still where it's like but put the two of us in a barrel and mix us up and and what you're getting is is a mix of two people and those are really really fun i mean those are just a blast and the go-giver books have all been like that the go-giver was was you know half bob and half me in terms of our experiences our thoughts our you know and so forth I, I absorbed a bunch of his blog posts and writings as well as my own blog posts and writings. And, you know, it's both of us, even though I did most of, the, most of the yeah. key. Um, the Go-Giver leader tilts a little bit more to me in my experience, because I've always really had a thing for leadership. Uh, it's always been a fascination of mine. The Go-Giver influencer tilts a little more Bob because influence is the thing that really fascinates him. Um, the Go-Giver Marriage, which is coming up, doesn't have Bob at all. Um, it's just my, my wife and me. And it's very much my wife and me. It's you'll find both of us. And you'll also, if you know Bob and his background and his, his parents and their marriage, you'll see, you know, this, the ghost of Bob hovering in the background of that book as well. So it is, it is co-writing is a fascinating and really rewarding experience. As long as you, as you said, you don't have your ego writing out front and you don't have to, you know, be uh, too aggressive about ownership. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I want to point to something within that because this is what's fascinating. You opened up in our beginning of our conversation and you said many things, but one thing you said was, 
I am doing what I was meant to do, Hmm. right? And inside of that, anybody, if they could see a video of you right now, right, this is audio, but there's an incredible amount of joy that that emanates from you, right? Like you truly are a joyful experience. I mean, I, I yeah. texted Mark, I said, this guy has great juju. Like that, I was just <laughs> like, wow, I like this man. That's juju. a literary term. Yeah, it's I understand, yes. Term, right? Psychological, psychological <laughs> terminology, yes. Cool. Yeah, I was so excited because it, you can, you experience joy when you're yeah. with joyful people, right? Yes. And I, I, I want to mention this. I was in a meditation last night and I get a lot of information, but I, what was said to me is joy is reverential. That is mm. the most high. And that's the art of being, right? I just love am it. joyful. And you are the expression of that. It's funny. I love how today I'm <laughs> you know, speaking with you. My point being, there has to be something to it. And this is a question that I'm kind of poking a philosophical question. Here you are, this writer, and you're not attached to what role you're gonna play or what accolades you're going to receive because you're doing what you love to do, which is what Mark and I call IntelliKey leadership. You find your passion, you find your purpose, you do it and the rest shows up around you. It doesn't matter where it, it, are you, it just sounds like you're enjoying the experience to the fullest in the present moment. Yeah, you know, um, my, teacher, my cello teacher when I was a kid, was a, was a guy who was just two years older than me. We were friends in school, um, practically the same class, just again, two years apart. And he has since become a world-class cellist. His name is David Finkel. And he, is the, he was for many, many years the cellist of the Emerson Quartet, one of the premier quartets in the world. And he's become the director of music programs in New York and all over the place. And he, he and his wife are like this acclaimed, sort of the king and queen of, of, of uh, classical chamber music. His career has been as a chamber music player, and he could easily have been a soloist like Yo-Yo Ma. And you know, if, for that matter, Yo-Yo Ma, look at him; he's a soloist, but he he revels in this in the, the, the chamber stuff he does. Um, when you play chamber music, chamber music by definition is a small group of musicians, not an orchestra, and it's not solo. It's like you know, three, four, eight, whatever. Chamber music is a special high in music. Uh, classical musicians know this. It's like being part of a rock band. Um, it, it, it is a particular high that you can't get any other way. You can't get as a solo artist. You can't get as a, as a soul player in front of a massive orchestra playing your concerto while they accompany you. Uh, it is, you know, the experience of a string quartet is unique for a string player. The appearance of a brass quartet, the experience of, of that kind of chamber uh, ensemble is just is just phenomenal. It's like, it's, like part of, it's like being part of a family. It's like being part of a cooperative enterprise, which is like what it's like to be part of a book, part of writing a book. And the truth is, mm -hmm. I've written a few books solo, but even those are cooperative enterprises because you have people behind you that the, that the readership never sees. You know, mm -hmm. the age, the it's a good, good reminder that it takes the whole team. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, John, we've just so thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. We're just so grateful that you uh, spent some time with us. You guys ask really thoughtful questions, and I love that. You know, you do something that not every podcast host does. Many do, more should, and that is you ask me a question. Then when I answer it, you actually listen to what I'm saying so that you can come back and say, you know, you said something that I want to go back to. Uh, I appreciate that it's genuine dialogue. And so, yeah, I really- Well, we, get, we can't teach workshops on listening and then not pay attention. So we, we do. Yeah. 
Yeah, shut up and listen to me. That's right. I love that. And I, and I Stop love talking that. so I can listen. Uh, you've mentioned parables and stories in the Bible, and I was recalling that uh, even in one of your posts recently on LinkedIn, you mentioned Malcolm Gladwell and his stories. I, I recently listened yeah. to his retelling of David and Goliath and learned more yeah. about that story than I ever knew from the Bible in all of my years in Sunday school. So, I mean, you know, parables and stories really uh, do uh, tell a lot more, don't they? Well, stories are, are universal and eternal. Uh, you know, they just, they, they're always, they're, they're the, the engine of human emotion. That's right. Well, listeners, our guest has been John David Mann, and be sure to check out his work, and his website is johndavidmann.com. Go back to The Go-Giver, go back to Who Moved My Cheese, the sequel, Out of the Maze, and The Latte Factor, and then upcoming, Steal Fear, and then next spring, The Go-Giver Marriage. We'll be on the lookout for those, John. All right. Thank you so much, you guys. And listeners, come back again next time. We'll continue our conversations with leaders all over the world about what makes a great leader that is reaching their full potential, but also elevating those around them to their full potential as well. And that's been our topic today. For Kirsten Goldie, I'm Mark Stenson, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories with your hosts, Kirsten Goldie and Mark Stinson. Connect with us on LinkedIn. And for more information on courses and consulting, visit pureintellikey.com. This program was produced by BSB Media, creators of IntelliKey Leadership Stories, unlocking your world of creativity, and thepeaceroom.love. Our podcasts are hosted on Captivate.fm and available anywhere in the world, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Ghana, and iHeartRadio. Radio.